Um, it's great to see you today. I want to welcome you to Trinity Church. It is always a privilege. Justin Unger has become just one of our ministry friends. We met up at Forest Home a few years ago, and whenever he's out, uh, just leading us in worship is always a treat. So don't uh, despair. He'll be back to close our service, and Nolan, his son, is here with him today helping lead us. They're doing a great job, so we're always uh, blessed to have them when they're here. If you have a Bible today, would you open it to 1 Samuel chapter 30? 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's in the Old Testament, the former covenant, if you want to find your way there. We are um, taking a bit of a detour. We're setting aside the Gospel of John for the month of June to engage a series that I really believe is incredibly important for Trinity Church. It's a series called At the Crossroads, and we'll kind of reference even the graphic for the series a little bit today and kind of give some explanation. We just kind of at the last part of last weekend's message was able to kind of forecast that for you a little bit. We'll give a little bit more explanation today as to why we're doing it. But we're so grateful to see you today on this first Sunday of June. Uh, like Alfredo did, I want to welcome you here inside. Those of you out on the pavilion, welcome to you today. And those watching online, thanks for joining us as well. So this series, and, and what I'm going to say is I really don't believe uh, the idea, the name of the series or the series to be overly dramatic. I really believe that we are at a juncture in our church's story. This month of June is going to be critical. And it's going to be an important month for a whole lot of fronts and a lot of opportunities, as you've heard in the announcements today, for you to engage and be a part of what's going on at Trinity that I believe will not only affect us in our present, but will have long-term implications for our future. And our goal is this, is that for a group of Christ followers, people who have said yes to Jesus and said yes, that we want to follow you with our lives. We want to engage your mission of being a group of people who are deeply rooted in you and the people who are committed to reaching our relational worlds. And so this series is going to talk about some things that helps, number one, create some context. How did we get here in the first place? And secondly, as we go through the month, it's going to talk as well about whose we are and about what we're called to do. And that's kind of be the, the gist of the next four weeks. Take a look at our series graphic. Um, what's important to me, I really appreciate uh, all of the folks who do so many great creative things, whether it be our worship ministries, Chris Dowdy putting together our bumper videos, Chris Petnack, our series graphics. We have ladies who've done an amazing job weekend, um, series in and series out of decorating our campus in a way that really just brings life to us when we walk on campus. But Chris put this together and it was powerful to me because I explained to him, I said, Chris, I can see something in my mind. I need your help to make it something everyone can see with their eyes, not just something I can visualize. And as always, he does a great job. And you'll notice that this crossroads isn't about a fork in the road, as though there is this choice or that choice, but there's three choices. And really what I want to say from the very beginning today is that the goal of Trinity Church moving forward is not that we would have an us victory. It's also not that we would just lay down for them but it's that we'd have a we, a we decision that walks forward together and the kind of unity that Jesus really carves out, demonstrates to us, prays over us. Paul reiterates it numerous times. It is the essence of who we're supposed to be about. 
And that we choice is what I want to begin talking about today when I provide a little bit of the context about how did we get here. Today we'll begin a journey uh, in a passage that to me defines the last 15 months, not just here at Trinity, but literally every church on the globe that has struggled following leaders. It's been a very challenging season everywhere, not just here. Believe it or not, I don't have three points or even a now what statement. I'm not even sure you can preach a message without those things, but I'm sure going to try, okay? We're just going to ask you and I to sink deeply into this narrative and just kind of walk it out together. And we're going to see some powerful things about the way that David is attempting to lead his mighty men, lead those who are the most loyal to him when there are people from outside that are all opposed. These are those that have committed to him, and we're going to see some of the challenges that they face together. So your Bibles are open to 1 Samuel chapter 30. What I want you to do is I want you to think, we ask you this often, I want you to kind of get into somebody's sandals today. I want you to think about who do you identify with the most in this passage? Number one, do you identify with those who are a part of David's um, group, his, his warriors, his mighty men and women, in this case, mighty men and women, who have said, we're, we're under your leadership, David. We believe in you. Would you align yourself a little bit more with David? Maybe in this season, you have been called to roles of leadership, and you will see and identify with him quickly how challenging that's been. Or maybe, as we'll get into the text, you'll find yourself actually most aligned with a group of people who are taken hostage and taken away and just kind of waiting upon someone to make a decision so that they might actually be indeed freed. So however you kind of see that as we walk through the text, I want to encourage you to find kind of who you identify with the most. So let's take a look together today about how we can survive, and I'm going to tell you, even thrive in the midst of these precedent-setting challenges, and how we can do that together. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. I was up at Hume Lake back in March for um, a pastor's retreat hosted by EFCA West. It was myself, eight other EFCA pastors, and then our district superintendent, Tim Jacobs. Tim is a friend of ours. He was here to preach at Trinity last July. And I would tell these guys later on, I have never needed a retreat so badly in my life. And when uh, I was there, God spoke in so many different ways. When I was coming down, if you've ever been to Hume, there's no reception for miles on the way up the mountain or the way down. But as soon as I came back in to the beautiful metropolis of Dinuba, where cell coverage is available, I hopped on the phone to those that I knew were praying for me that week. And I called them and I said, you know, this week was so powerful to me because it not only gave me encouragement, it gave me strength something I hadn't had in months. And so it was a joy to get to call them and tell them about that. And one of the reasons that that week was so important to me, there were a host of different ways that God spoke, but this passage in particular came off the pages of my Bible as we spent some time in it together during that week. And that's why I'm so excited to share it with you today. And the reason why I think it's so important is because I think it is a way that we can relate what we've been through in the pandemic. We can relate somehow to it through this biblical narrative. 
let's pick it up where we're at. David has been the anointed, the king of Israel, but interestingly enough, he's anointed king while there's another king on the throne, King Saul. That makes things a little bit unique. Saul had tried numerous times to kill David and been unsuccessful at every venture. Interestingly enough, David has had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but every single time says to his men, I cannot raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. That is not for me to do. This hiding out from Saul as well as hiding out from Israel's enemies becomes incredibly challenging to David and this small army, this small band of men that he's amassed around him. And that's where we pick it up today. We pick it up in the last chapter of what has been this cat and mouse game throughout the bulk of the second half of 1 Samuel. And it's going to end just one chapter after this. 1 Samuel ends in chapter 31 with Saul's armies being defeated and Saul taking his own life. But like they always say, it's always darkest just before the dawn. Don't miss how the chapter begins. David and his men had lived in this tenuous place of pretending to be loyal to one of Israel's enemies while being on the run from Israel's king. That's a powerful challenge and tension. They'd used the city of Ziklag as an outpost where they'd made their homes and where they kept their wives and their kids while they were out kind of in the countryside and doing what they needed to do. During this time, another enemy of both Israel and Philistia this group called the Amalekites. They find their way to Ziklag. They send a raiding party. They capture every living person there and burn the city to the ground. That's where we pick it up in verse 3. When David and his men had reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Watch this. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Imagine they have been riding for three days on horseback from the last place they had been as in the end of chapter 29. And as they get to 30, imagine their desire over those three days to hop off their horse and run into the embrace of their wives, run into the embrace of their children, only to come and see the city destroyed and no sign of any of them. Talk about an intense lack of experience of expectations. What they were maybe some of them even just living for to get to see them again, they're gone. The language of the text is powerful from the original Hebrew language. David and his men, they didn't just cry. They weren't just emotional. They wept. They convulsed. And they did so so they had no strength left to weep. I think it's interesting to try to visualize that for a little bit. These are mighty men. These are men of valor, men of war. They have seen a lot of loss in their lives, but this was the last straw. This was the thing that brought them and wrecked them emotionally where they had nothing left to give. None of us in the last 15 months have experienced something to that degree of loss but we've experienced a lot. We've experienced a lot of challenge, a lot of restriction, and a lot of loss. And I want to pull you back into that world. For some of us, we still have PTSD, and you don't want to remind me, you don't want me to remind you of what you've been through. But I think it helps for context for where we're going today. 
for the ways that our lives were changing day after day, week after week, month after month. It began with an initial alarm of how an unknown virus had the potential to result in mass casualties here and around the world. It moved to a nationwide shutdown with restrictions that caused us to work differently, live differently, go to school differently, uh, do business different. To shelves being empty and products nearly impossible to locate for weeks, most of us in our lifetimes have never experienced that before. What do you mean there's no toilet paper? A generation before us had, World War II had rations over things, but most of us in our lifetime had never experienced that before. Then we were moved to relational caves that we were thrust into, not being able to see our closest family members, our closest friends, for fear that we would get or give the virus to them. First responders and medical professionals who had a steady influx of challenges, and even in locally in January and February, a surge that pushed them beyond exhaustion. Businesses that were forced to drastically change their approach, some of which went under as a result. And those of us who lost loved ones, those of us who lost family members, either directly related to the virus or things implicated by it. Add to this, racial angst and tensions that we haven't known as a country for decades that still have yet to be fully resolved or addressed. Add to this accusations made against law enforcement officials who were categorically implicated wrongly because of what some of their peers had done. Add to this an election year that was filled with polarizing views and attitudes that seemed to tear the very heart of our republic apart. Add to this locally in our area, wildfires last summer that turned our skies brown and were gravely threatening homes and even destroyed some in our local area. Then specific to Trinity Church's congregation, the polarizing opinions of how Trinity's leaders, when they would decide, should we or shouldn't we meet indoors? Should we or shouldn't we wear face coverings? Should we or shouldn't we accept funds from a PPP loan? I got to tell you one thing I'm absolutely sure of. Trinity's elders have been equal opportunity offenders. It is doubtful there is a person sitting here, a person on the plaza, a person watching online who hasn't been in some area in disagreement with decisions we've made in the last 15 months. Can I tell you this? I have been in disagreement with some of the decisions we've made in the last 15 months. It's affected all of us. Add to that the abrupt dismissal of a pastoral staff member in the middle of last summer. Add to that the resulting frustration of people who were not satisfied with the elders' explanation of how issues were being handled and started a petition to hold their own congregational meeting. Add to this, those issues still today, nine months later, are seemingly no closer to being resolved than they were in August. Look in your notes. It's been 15 months that has left us often weeping aloud until we've had no strength to weep. You need to identify the realities of how hard this season has been. Because I think sometimes we just get into modes where we just want to put it out of mind, but your emotions can't do that. And the way you and I respond often still bears the marks that we are a people who have been hurt deeply in these last 15 months. It's categorically been one of the hardest seasons for anyone to lead anything but I want you to see a powerful thing that sometimes you and I miss 
when we criticize leaders who've been called to lead. Look at the next verse, 1 Samuel 30, verse 5. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. You see, our leaders have not attempted to lead from ivory towers because there have been none to run to. Leaders here in our church, leaders in our country, leaders in our world have all been deeply affected at a soul level, at a family level, at a life level, just like every one of us. And I know we have all been at times critical of leaders. I have too. But it's important to remember, none of them have had it easier than us. This has just affected everyone deeply. So within that reality, this is the context, not only for this passage, this is the context for our lives. As a result of this sorrow, what happens next in the narrative? 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. It's interesting to me, by the way, they weren't bitter because their wives had been taken. I think that's a problem. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) These men not only were so troubled in spirit that it moved them to be broken emotionally, but like what always happens when things outside of our control deeply affect us, we look for someone to blame. David's a leader, it's his fault. David, why were we out gallivanting in the countryside when no one was left to keep watch over our wives and kids? David, you are the rightful anointed king of Israel. How long do we have to be on the run? David, you've had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. God gave them to you, they're right in your hand. Why do you keep subjecting us to this? These were all the kinds of frustrations they must have had that moved them beyond frustration to mutiny. These men who had been his strongest, his toughest, his only allies, now they're about to turn on him because of the great loss that they're experiencing. That's why today's message is appropriately titled, Leadership Isn't for Wimps. My friend Nancy Moore has told that to our elder board a couple times. It's tough. But I want to say this. The only way we're going to make it through is not to rely upon ourselves, but the leader. The leader himself. And that's what I love so much about this narrative, because that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 6, the end of 6. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Mutiny is on the verge, but what does it say? David doesn't freak out. David doesn't run. David doesn't fall apart. Even though these challenges have deeply affected his personal life as well, David looks to the Lord. And you know why? Because this wasn't David's first rodeo. You see, as a young man taking care of his father's flocks, He looked to the Lord to provide strength against the bear, against the lion that came against his helpless sheep. As a young man, when the armies of God were running away from a giant, he was running at him because this fool dared defied Yahweh. He relied upon the Lord. As just a few months or years later, 
David is literally sitting at a dinner table and the king of Israel is throwing a spear across the table trying to pin him to the wall. David is on the run and he relies on the Lord for strength. David amasses this group of men and he is literally uh, persona non grata everywhere he goes. But he relies on the Lord for strength. That's what's so remarkable. That's what is so exemplary about David's response. David has gone where he went so many times before. He went to the Lord. And he found strength to keep putting one foot in front of the next. It's been an interesting time for me as a leader. One of the things I've realized in the last few weeks, I will tell people as we've talked in the last month or five weeks, that it's only been in this last season I've been able to see things straight. And one thing I didn't realize, I realized in this sequence I have never personally been through crisis before. I've had hard times. I've grieved people I've loved, we've, I've lost. But grief and crisis can be different. And I didn't really know what it was. I just knew I was an emotional wreck day upon day after day. My family had to endure it. Those around me closest to me had to endure it. It was just a mess. And I remember early on in the process crying out to the Lord, God, I feel like I'm in the shed and I'm just getting beat up. Can this change? Can you let me out? But I realized along the way that God was up to something, teaching me lessons I couldn't learn any other way. And my prayer changed. Somewhere in there, my prayer changed. God, it's obvious that you have me here for a reason. So I'm going to ask you, teach me everything you want me to learn. And don't let me out until you do. Man, beware of prayers like that. <laughs> but God's been great very merciful, and in the process, what I've come to realize is I just, uh, if you were here or watched our April 25th church assessment meeting with Nancy, I just confess to you as a church family, I apologize for how long it took me. I just wish I could have had a perspective change earlier because the one thing I really buy in when Ray Johnson says the most important thing for a leader to do is to stay encouraged. I had lost my courage for months. But God's done a work in me. And I am so grateful to be able to think straightforward, to be able to deal with things and not just keep falling apart all the time. And in that, he's given me a renewed courage and a renewed strength to keep putting one foot in front of the next. But watch this, not to be self-reliant, but to be spirit-reliant. And keep asking the Lord, God, I need strength today to keep putting one foot in front of the next. And lead with courage with those that God has called to lead. Lead with courage those that you've appointed to lead at Trinity Church. That we'd move forward together, leading the way that we're called to. So in that, I would say I'm in such a better place. Because I'm listening to the word of God. I'm listening to a still small voice. And I'm listening to the voices that God has so strategically put in my life. I just got to keep praising my wife. Man, Joanne has just been amazing. So I want you to see specifically how David found his strength in the Lord. Chapter 30, verse 7. 
Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. This is what David says, bring me the ephod. Abiathar took, brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Let's unpack that a little bit. This is how David says, Lord, I need you. I need direction. Bring me the ephod. Bring me the ephod. So he's talking to this guy named Abiathar. Abiathar, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, you'll read he's the lone survivor from the city of Nob, N-O-B. Nob was a city of priests dedicated to Yahweh. That's what they did. It was a priestly city. And in this city, David had come at one point for help. They helped him briefly. David was on his way. Saul comes to this group of priests and he says, I hear that you've helped David. They don't dis... Uh, they don't lie about it. They said, yes, we did. He was in need. He's God's anointed. Watch this. Saul kills everyone in the town, levels it, burns it to the ground. You guys, this is the stuff that when Joshua was sent into the promised land, Canaan, a, a people that needed to be judged by God, God says to Joshua, go to this city and level it and don't leave a thing alive. Saul does that to God's people. God's priests. That's how upside down Paul had be, or Saul had become with jealous rage. Abiathar is the only survivor. He grabs the ephod and hits his way on the run. He comes to David, joins David's band as a man who is uh, basically their resident priest. Earlier in 1 Samuel 23, David had said the same thing to Abiathar, come and bring the ephod, let's seek the Lord together. And now in 1 Samuel 30, he does the same thing. Let's seek the Lord and let's find out what he wants me to do. Now, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't remember what an ephod was. I know the word, but I didn't know my Old Testament well enough. Take a look up on the screen. This is really cool. The ephod is this bedazzled, basically, um, thing that a, a priest would have worn in, uh, in this Jewish uh, religious system. And, and it would be this, this ornamented thing full literally with jewels that, that he would wear that would kind of have this sense of just the austereness, not of him, but of Yahweh. So David says, put on the ephod. I want to seek the Lord. I want to understand. But like we said a few minutes ago, this wasn't David's first rodeo. David knew that when things were tough, when leadership decisions were challenging, you go to the Lord. Seek his face. Ask him what he wants and where we should lead. And David receives a yes to his question, and off he and his men went. Chapter 30, verse 9. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where, they stayed, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master. 
and I will take you down to them. Notice this as they ride out in pursuit, the Lord has told David, yes, go. You're going to find these men who've taken your families captive. So as they go, they get to this valley, the Valley of Besor, and as they get there, 200 of the 400 men are so exhausted they can't go on. And a great question, these are warriors. Why are they exhausted? Did you remember what we read a few minutes ago? They wept so much that they had no more strength to weep. 200 of them became totally incapacitated and could not go any further. Notice the leadership of David. Stay here. Stay here. So one-third of his army is not available to him. In this pandemic season, there have been people who have been so emotionally, so physically, so spiritually wrecked that they couldn't go forward. They needed to just wait on the sidelines. They needed to have people minister to them. Chances are most of us have fit that bill over the last 15 months at one point or another. You can relate to that group of David's mighty men. I want you to keep that group in mind as we read a little further. God brings a left for dead slave across their pathway. They rejuvenate him and in listening to him and where he comes from, they realize he's part of the raiding party and they get him to agree, I'll take you there, just spare my life. Chapter 30, verse 16. He led David down. This is the slave. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. I want you to note that David did what David did best. He took men into battle, and he won. He was gifted by God to do that, and more often than not, they experienced a victory. I want you to see this, though. Not only do they defeat the um, uh, ruthless cowards, these Amalekites who come into a defenseless town and take everyone captive and burn it to the ground. Not only does he recover everything, every one that was taken, watch, he actually gained flocks and herds that the Amalekites had taken from others as plunder and now actually comes out ahead as a result of a horrible tragedy that happened to him and his men. I just want you to ask that question for just a second. Look in your notes. Can you even begin to believe that what's happened in your life and in the lives of those around you in your relational world, the lives of others in our community and our country could actually be positively impacted for the challenges that we faced, leaving us off afterwards, better off afterwards than we were before March of 2020? I think for so many of us, that is completely hard to fathom. How can we be better as a people as a result of all that we have had to endure the last 15 months? Can I tell you one thing, not even in my notes, but one thing that I've said to our staff multiple times? We have become a much more flexible people. 
For a church that hadn't changed their service times for 18 years, we were changing them weekly. <laughs> and guess what? You were showing up. It's not a compliment just to the staff, it's a compliment to you. Flexibility is something that we've learned in the pandemic that we shouldn't trade for inflexibility when we come back. That's a good thing. I know another way that definitely we can come out ahead, come out better off than we were, is the way that we have gained hope. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in the last 15 months because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We come out better on the other side of the pandemic because now we understand, more importantly, why hope is so important, why hope is so essential to hold on to and to keep pressing on. Now, I would love to wrap up this narrative by saying that David got all the men back together, took all the flocks back, and they all lived happily ever after. But I can't say that because that's not how it goes. It's not at all what happened. Chapter 30, verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bessor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them, he asked the 200 how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, they said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them, share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Hmm. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the men, the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this statue an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Isn't it powerful that even in the relief and the joy of winning a battle, David's men have something to complain about? Why should those who didn't engage the battle but stayed back because they were exhausted, why should they receive any benefit from the battle we fought? In your notes, David's challenges of leading his people in unity weren't over simply because the victory was won. David's challenges weren't over simply because the battle was won. I want you to note the description. Note that there were among David's army those who were evil men and troublemakers. That's the descriptor about them. Note that David was in the role of leader. I want you to note that when they come out and they meet these men on the other side, they come out, David asks them how they are. It's not David who speaks up, the leader of this group. It's other men around him who say, you have no part in this because you didn't go to the battle like we did. We get the share of plunder, not you. They're usurping David's authority to speak and saying how it's going to be. David says, who will listen to you? You're not in charge. And instead lays down an ordinance that says from time forward, from that time forward, those who go to the battle and those who stay back equally will have a share in the spoil. 
That's why this series graphic was developed the way it was. It's not a win for us. It's not a win for them. It's only a win for we. It's only a win when we gather together, we move forward together and say, God, we want to be this unique people that you've called out. A people gathered together around the mission of living lives that are rooted in Jesus and reaching our worlds as his ambassadors of reconciliation. And in order to do that, we need to be reconciled. Doug mentioned earlier the conflict resolution meeting this Saturday. Can I just tell you this? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I did, who loves conflict? Most of us don't. There are a few, but most of us don't. So literally just the name of that event, (laughs) dear God, I'm steering away. I want nothing to do with that. But can I tell you this? One thing that was really powerful on our April 25th meeting was when Nancy, on her estimation of the survey result and the comments that were made, Nancy said that at Trinity Church, we have active conflict. That's her words. It was fascinating as multiple people came to the mic that day and said, literally, I don't know what you're talking about. What conflict? Can I tell you this? If you know what the conflict is about and you have conflict in your spirit with the leadership of Trinity Church, you need to be here this Saturday night at 6. But watch this. If you're going, I don't know what the conflict's about, and on one hand, I don't really want to know, can I tell you? That's actually a good reason to be here on Saturday and to hear it from the sources, not secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, and be a part of a healing process. What's going to happen on your way out at the doors today? Nancy, when, when the elders first heard of this idea of a conflict resolution gathering, we're like, what's that? Nancy has done an amazing job of laying out four or five page document, laying out this is what that event looks like. And the very first part of that event is being prepared. So on your way out today at all the exits is a prayer prompt that Nancy put together with verses to consider and to be praying about this coming week as you consider attending Saturday night. Both due to Nancy's request and due to the nature of the event, we're not live streaming it. So you'll need to be here in person if you're gonna be a part of it. And I know for some of us, that's just like wringing your hands with anxiety. But can I tell you, these are pathways that the elders believe that will help us work together moving forward. It's hard work, but it's gonna be worth it. So I wanna encourage you, be a part this month of June of seeing healing at Trinity so we can find a way forward. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a people who, as we hear this narrative from 1 Samuel 30, God, we're just stunned with the parallels that we see in our situation. None of us have had our city burnt to the ground and our family carted away, but God, we have experienced significant degrees of loss and hurt and frustration. And my prayer is, God, that you would bring healing to this church. A lot of churches are struggling. A lot of churches are dealing with issues. We're dealing with ours. God, would you bring healing, reconciliation, restoration to the people of Trinity Church? If you're here today and you've never responded to this incredibly great news called the gospel, 
the fact that there's a loving God who sent his son in your place so that you wouldn't receive the due penalty that sin in your life deserves, you have an opportunity today to be reconciled to God. It begins by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admitting like you're a part of everyone in the human race. God, I've lived my way, not yours. I fall short of your goodness and your glory. Be believe. Believe that God did send his one of a kind son to live a sinless life, to die a sacrificial death, to be raised supernaturally on the third day. He did all that to cover your penalty. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my trust, my confidence, put my faith in who you are, what you've done for me, not what I can do religiously for you. I need you and I wanna live my life living, following your example. You can make that decision to respond to the gospel right where you are, no class needed, no hoops to jump through, right here, right today. And my prayer is that you wouldn't take another day to figure that out. Father, we love you and we are so grateful that in all things, even the things that are the hardest to navigate, you are the way maker. We love you and pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.